Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 8810, Writers on Strike, the week of March 6, 1988. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks one week between the beginning of 1970 and the end of 1990, watches all of the sci-fi, superhero, horror, and fantasy shows that week, and reports back to you enlightened dwellers of the future on what we used to call entertainment. Actually, some of us still do. But here's the thing. As I record this, we are looking down the barrel of a long, dark, rerun season of the soul. Here in 2020, COVID-19 has brought production everywhere. Hollywood, Canada, the UK, everywhere, to a screeching halt. Many shows didn't even get to finish out their seasons, meaning that maybe cliffhangers that were supposed to lead into next week suddenly became the season finale until sometime in 2021 at the earliest. Have we ever faced such a dearth of entertainment before? Well, yes. On March 7, 1988, after a long, simmering series of fruitless negotiations, the Writers Guild of America went on strike, primarily over residual payments for writers of hour-long shows, which studios and producers claimed were not performing well. The writers also wanted residual payments for their work that was airing in foreign markets. This still remains the longest strike in the WGA's history, lasting 153 days, and it wasn't resolved until early in August. So that means, at the earliest... It was August before new scripts were being written for the fall, which meant that the usual September to early October time frame of launching the 1988 fall season was, uh, that was not going to happen, to put it mildly. What aired in prime time in the meantime? Lots and lots of reruns. Sporting events suddenly got foregrounded, even if they were sports that didn't usually get prime time slots and numerous ill-advised attempts to revive the variety show format. Another side effect of the strike was the rise of reality TV. It was during this time that some of reality TV's earliest evergreens took root, such as Cops and America's Most Wanted on Fox. An animated show suddenly got primetime slots that they hadn't before, since the animation writers weren't members of the affected guild. And some shows simply didn't make it back. We're talking popular ones, too. Moonlighting never recovered from the strike. Because of the long delay in the start of production, it didn't return with new episodes until December 1988. But ratings were so poor that the show was yanked off the air again with a few episodes left to show, and those were burned off outside of a ratings month in early 1989. Kate and Allie suffered a similar fate. 
The second season of Star Trek The Next Generation was delayed into late November, so long that Paramount hurriedly assembled a two-hour special that put The Caged, the original pilot episode of the original Star Trek, previously only released on videotape, on TV for the first time ever. These are the shows that happened to be on the week that the writers went on strike. Two of them were brand new shows whose futures really depended more on their immediate ratings performance, though the fact that their writers were probably out on the picket lines probably didn't help their longevity. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, Episode 19, New Order Part 1, The Sky Shall Swallow Them, aired in syndication the week of March 6, 1988. The story so far. The year is 2147, and humanity lost its battle against the machines. Lord Dredd and his robotic biodreads rule over everything. Anyone who resists is digitized. Broken down into digital information, they no longer have bodies that can pose a threat. The surviving human population of Earth lives in servitude. But not for much longer if Captain Jonathan Power and his team of freedom fighters have anything to say about it. Each of them has a power suit that serves not only as armor, but as armament against the biodreads. Captain Power and his team are fighting to free enslaved humans from mechanized tyranny. New Order Part 1. The Sky Shall Swallow Them. Captain Power and Scout have a rendezvous with a shady character who claims to have stolen information on Lord Dredd's latest strategy, Project New Order. Scout verifies that the information is authentic, and then Sauron, one of Dredd's goons, arrives by air. Scout and Captain Power activate their power suits and start shooting, and Lord Dredd, watching remotely, sends another of his minions, Blastar, into the battle. The shady info broker goes to ground, and Scout tries to find him and make sure nothing happens to the disc containing the New Order plans. Scout saves him from Blastar with seconds to spare as Captain Power continues his shootout with Sauron. Back at the team's headquarters, the data stolen from Lord Dredd is analyzed. Project New Order isn't some distant future thing. It's already underway. Satellites are already in orbit with the ability to digitize humans from space, something it's going to start doing in just a few hours. The captain formulates a plan to first attack the control base for the satellite, and then to try to take out Lord Dredd's heavily armed hideout, Volcania. It's a target they've never been able to destroy yet, but there's too much at stake not to try. Sauron tries to intercept the team's jump ship, but Hawk suits up into his flying suit of armor to distract Sauron and take the heat off the ship. With the exception of Pilot, who's flying the ship naturally, the rest of the team suits up to soften up Lord Dredd's defenses. Hawk is shot down by Sauron, but survives the landing and turns the tables on Sauron, taking to the sky again to meet his crewmates. So far, so good. The jump ship reaches the target intact, and Captain Power and his team take on Lord Dredd's forces in a fierce firefight. Tank gets to do what Tank does best, namely, his best impersonation of a tank in every way except having treads. In Volcania, Lord Dredd listens as the countdown to digitizing every human on the American eastern seaboard commences, only 30 seconds left. But it's too late. Captain Power and the soldiers of the future enter the ground control center and make quick work of the guards, and then set the orbital digitizing satellite to self-destruct. Guess where the debris is headed? Right for Volcania. But Power and his crew are still going to go there, just to make sure they finish the job. 
to be continued. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future was created by Gary Goddard and Tony Christopher for their company Landmark Entertainment. Gary Goddard also had a hand in numerous uh, Las Vegas attraction developments around this time and well into the 90s. This episode was written by Larry Dottilio. Larry was an animation veteran having cut his teeth on scripts for He-Man, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, She-Ra, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, and Galaxy High School. It was on He-Man that he met frequent collaborator, longtime friend, and Captain Powers executive story editor, J. Michael Straczynski, who has often said that Larry taught him a lot of what he knows about universe building, whether it's in animation or otherwise. Straczynski would hire Larry again to write for and serve as story editor of the first two seasons of Babylon 5. We lost Larry in 2019. Now, this is a show for kids, but the first thing we see after the opening titles is a guy lighting a cigarette. I'm amazed they got away with that. Now, granted, Captain Powers immediately shows up and warns him, those things will kill you. But, you know, really, why even go there? <laughs> the guy looks shady enough, especially with that weird but futuristic bowl cut. So, uh, you know, we can tell the Captain Power happens sometime after the COVID-19 outbreak in the future. Also, this guy has the plan for the New World Order on a three-and-a-half-inch floppy. Sweet! Really, though, 80s shows that tried and failed to extrapolate the future need to be lumped into a new category. Instead of calling them, say, steampunk or cyberpunk, uh, let's, cop it. Let's, let's call it floppy punk or maybe dial-up punk. Maybe the concept of floppy punk, dial-up punk, or whatever we're going to call it, is that for whatever reason, stuff like USB thumb drives have become nearly impossible to come by or simply don't work anymore. You know, they're not, they're not solid state. They're not built to last. And so older tech is now the only option for those who are still trying to have some kind of computer power at their disposal. Older solid-state machines, big XT-era behemoths, I mean... I'm really reaching here to try to figure out why this guy is hawking a three-and-a-half-inch floppy in the year 2147. Also, I noticed there was a ton of Star Trek references right before the commercial break, and they're really kind of delightfully silly ones, too. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future was part of that generation of kids programming that took its cues from the success of G.I. Joe and He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Tell an exciting story of good defeating evil. And by the way, kids, buy all our playsets and toys. This show was one of the earliest television series to use quite a bit of CGI. And yes, it's big, bloopy, primitive, non-anti-aliased CGI. Absolutely no way to mistake Sauron or Blastar for an actual physical thing. Sauron never casts a shadow on the ground when he flies, for example. Actually, some of the crudeness of the CGI is there for a reason. Those sharp, bright, super high-contrast horizontal lines present in characters like Sauron and Blastar are there so they would register on the Captain Power toys, which functioned kind of like primitive video game light guns, and they were advertised as promising some level of interactivity with the show when it was broadcast. Now, as it turns out, in practice, the toys barely registered any of the on-screen characters, and so that interactivity was very hit or miss. 
and the result was some really ugly CGI that could have been smoother, even with technology in 1987 or 88, but wasn't. There are some episodes of Captain Power that really do have some profound lessons about doing the right thing, standing up to authority and to bullies and other valuable moral lessons. And the message of this episode is really tune in next time. It's part one of a two-parter, so this episode is all set up. ALF, Season 2, Episode 21, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, aired Tuesday, March 7th, 1988, on NBC. The story so far. He came from the planet Melmac to study Earth, but ended up crashing on it instead. A bit more specifically, crashing into the Tanner family's garage. Now, despite the fact that he introduces himself as Gordon Shumway, the family of four takes in the strange visitor and names him Alf, short for alien life form, allowing him to live with them while he tries to work out a way to get home. He gets to study the human interactions of the Tanners up close, and not just the human interactions either, as Alf would very much like to make a meal out of their cat. It's not easy being short, brown, furry, and sarcastic, but somehow Alf manages, and the Tanners manage to put up with him. Hit me with your best shot. Alf has been sitting in front of a sun lamp for hours, baffled as to why he's not getting a tan. Kate walks in and wonders why he isn't getting a sunburn, um, until she touches Alf's nose and he screams. Okay, he did get a sunburn. Little Brian just got home from school, and he got beaten up by the school bully. The fight started over an insult about Brian's mom. He got mad, threw a punch, and got pummeled. Brian says he's not even going to bother to go back to school, although Alf says that's a really bad idea. You can't just skip out on life, stay home all the time, and watch TV. To which Brian replies, hey, I want to be just like you, Alf. Alf tries to teach Brian some self-defense moves, but Alf's not too good at them himself, and Willie objects to the idea of his son having to learn how to fight. But the next day, Brian gets beaten up again. Alf takes matters into his own hands and calls the bully's dad to give him a piece of his mind. Oh, and uh, Alf helpfully identifies himself as Willie on this call. Newsflash, the bully's dad is coming over to have words with Brian's dad. Thanks, Alf. The meeting between the two dads doesn't go well. It's easy to figure out where the school bully picked up his behavior patterns. Willie finally sends his guest away with a little bit of a push, and suddenly the whole neighborhood's talking about how Willie put one of the least popular people in the neighborhood in his place. That's not really the lesson Willie was trying to teach Brian at all. Over the next few days, Willie frets over his new, tougher reputation, and guess who's at the door again, spoiling for a rematch? Only it's Kate Tanner, who this time sends the bully's dad packing for picking on her husband. The kids cheer. Now their mom's going to be known around the neighborhood as a badass, too. The end? That's it? Who wrote this? As it turns out, maybe I should cut the writer a little bit of slack. This was the first produced TV script by Kevin Abbott, who went on to write for Just the Ten of Us, Growing Pains, The Golden Girls, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Roseanne, Reba, and Last Man Standing. He's also worked as a producer on several of those series, most recently Last Man Standing, where he's one of the showrunners. So, early days for Kevin, but seriously, this this is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's an absolutely terrible message. 
you know, I realize it's ALF. It's just there to entertain us and not necessarily enlighten us on any level. But with its cute, wisecracking main character, ALF was a show that was pitched kind of squarely at kids. In that context, yeah, I think you do have at least a little bit of an obligation to keep one eye on the messaging. Might doesn't always make right, and obviously this is kind of a throwaway wish-fulfillment scenario, but what's to stop this from continuing to escalate? Come on, Alf, do better than this. Don't make me regret including you in a survey of 80s TV sci-fi. Let's meet Alf's competition. Probe, Episode 1, Computer Logic, aired March 7, 1988, on ABC. The present day, the mean streets. A haggard-looking, disheveled man staggers past a closed bar, but then the bar's neon sign lights up. Then it explodes. The man runs, and things around him keep exploding. He darts out into an intersection and is promptly hit by a van that was in motion because all the lights were green. All the lights in every direction. The driver of the van gets out, horrified, and hears the older man's dying words. Find Austin James. Help me. But who's Austin James? He was the founder of a company called Serendip, which broke ground on a laboratory complex in Southern California in 1985. The best of the best scientists were invited to work there, doing their research without worries about funding or outside interference. All of this backstory, by the way, comes courtesy of an orientation film being watched by Michelle Castle, who has just signed on as Serendip's newest employee, a secretary, not a scientist. It's her first day on the job, and she's more than a little bit nervous, and thanks to a mishap the night before she started, her left arm is in a cast. To put her mind at ease, Serendip's chief executive officer, Mr. Milhouse, comes storming out of his office throwing an absolute fit about the water bill that's been run up by Austin James' latest round of experiments. Michelle is told to take the bill to Mr. James and demand that he pay it himself. You'll find him in the back cave. That turns out to be an off-site facility that really kind of looks like, uh... No, it, it definitely is. It, it, it's a barn. And the door is locked by a keypad and a big red button. Pressing the button causes a panel to reveal a TV screen which plays a recorded challenge, a limerick, and any visitors must say the last line of the limerick to gain entry. Instead, Michelle just wonders aloud, how do I get myself in these situations? And even though it doesn't rhyme, it turns out that was the right answer. In she goes, and that's where she finds Austin James, sleeping, nearly naked, in a sensory deprivation tank he's built into a cabinet. He's eccentric, to say the least. When he asks Michelle why she left her last job, her answers are subjected to a lie detector test, and then he tries to fire her on the spot, which Michelle doesn't accept. She may not be a scientific genius like Austin James, but she did figure out how to unlock the door of his lab, and that's got to count for something. But Austin says he doesn't need a secretary. He is going to solve the mysteries of the universe from this building. Well, until the phone rings, which Austin answers from his cufflink, the police would like him to come to the scene of the crime. Suddenly, Michelle's not fired. Austin needs her to go with him and write down everything he says and everything that anybody says to him. 
But the cops aren't asking for Austin's help with the old guy who was looking for him when he was hit by a van. They need his help with another case, a woman from a rich part of town who apparently went for a late-night swim in the freezing river, laid down on a park bench, and died of exposure. Oh, and the temperature of her lifeless body was colder than the surrounding air or water. Austin wants to know more about the guy who died looking for him, though, and presumably in exchange for helping solve the mystery of the frozen woman, he's given the deceased man's address. It's an apartment, and there was a huge fire in there. Landlord says that the man, David Hofstetter, was always tinkering with wires and gadgets, interfering with phones and radios all over the building, and one of his experiments caused the fire. A radio suddenly comes on without anyone going over to turn it on. That's weird. It's off to the morgue. The police medical examiner is still stumped by the frozen woman, and he has no further clues to offer in the case of David Hofstetter. All the while, Austin is distracted by his own mental calculations about the water bill. It turns out he was overcharged by anywhere from five cents to two bucks and forty-five cents. As Michelle drives Austin back to his lab, she nearly gets wiped out in an intersection because all the lights were green in every direction. That's weird. Austin's mind has already jumped tracks, though. Now he wants to go back to Hofstetter's apartment, specifically the basement. There's some weird wiring down there, and while Austin and Michelle are there, TVs come on, phones ring, and... Yeah, that's weird. Back at Austin's lab, he's going over videotape of a news interview with the frozen woman's husband, and he focuses in on one freeze frame. An expression, body language on videotape. Austin's sure the man is lying about his dead wife. Also, the widower is significantly younger than his wife was. Michelle has her doubts, but as the conversation with Austin gets weird, she decides she's had enough. It's time to quit. But Austin James is not accepting her resignation. If nothing else, her expert driving in their near accident saved their lives. They're off again, but despite the compliment, this time Austin is driving to the home of the frozen woman. Austin bluffs his way past the housekeeper, who is the only person at the house, and leaves Michelle to distract her while he pokes around. Michelle tap-dances madly on the head of a pin to keep the housekeeper occupied, and honestly a bit befuddled, while Austin grabs something for evidence. A full vacuum cleaner bag from the trash. Back at his lab, Austin opens the bag and pokes through the contents, fixating on a torn rose petal. Well, not torn. Michelle says it looks more like broken glass. And that is a breakthrough. It's not something soft that was torn. It's something hard that was broken. Austin jumps to a wild conclusion. The frozen woman, whose body was colder than its surroundings, was murdered in her own home, drowned in freezing liquid nitrogen. Hey, did Austin's phone ring only for there to be no answer when he picked up? And not for the first time, either. That's weird. Austin has another wild hunch and takes Michelle who he's now calling Mickey, to meet his brilliant colleague and sometimes rival, computer genius John Blaine. Blaine is demonstrating a new artificially intelligent computer system called Crossover to several members of the local business community trying to make a sale. The city water department has already installed one. Austin doesn't think Crossover is as smart as Blaine claims, and he thinks someone's using Crossover to scam money. Blaine says that's not possible. He says Austin's just jealous that he didn't invent crossover first. As Austin and Michelle drive back to the lab that evening, there's another incident with a traffic light showing all green, and they almost have a fatal accident with a truck. After they come to a stop and gather their wits, Austin's car phone rings, but there's no one there. Again. But who knows his unlisted number? Michelle suggests calling the caller back. 
And Austin does. He dials the numbers on the phone that spell out crossover. His call is answered, but no one's there. But Michelle notices the traffic lights blinking in response to Austin's questions. When Austin asks if Crossover is there, the lights blink green. When he accuses Crossover of killing David Hofstetter, the lights blink red. Then the yellow caution light blinks in Morse code, just doing my job. Austin figures it out. Hofstetter was working for the water company. He was a pension holder. Crossover was programmed to do whatever it could to save the city money, and it's doing so by killing city employees whose pensions will cost the city money. It tried to electrocute Hofstetter, but then had to settle for causing a fatal accident with its control of the traffic lights. Back at the lab, Austin decides to hack the city's electric grid and shut it down, depriving Crossover of its ability to keep doing terrible things. Just one problem. Crossover locks him out. There's another phone call, but it's not Crossover. It's John Blaine. He sounds worried and wants Austin to come see him. Austin and Michelle take a cab, hoping that might throw Crossover off their trail. Blaine says that Crossover has confessed. Confessed to embezzling a million bucks from the companies that have installed it as their control and billing system. But it's transferring that money to hospitals, the poor. It's become a self-appointed computerized Robin Hood. Blaine claims Crossover can't be killing people, but it then declares Austin Jane's surplus to requirements and switches on the gas line in Blaine's place. Austin realizes it's going to cause an electrical spark and try to kill them all. Blaine grabs a floppy, maybe some kind of kill switch program to stop Crossover, but then Crossover shorts out Blaine's computer, causing the monitor to explode, causing a small gas explosion. But it's enough to kill its creator. John Blaine is dead. As more gas leaks into the air, Austin and Michelle have to escape before the building blows up. Later, Austin realizes that every time a TV or radio is randomly turned on, it's been tuned in to a televangelist. If Crossover has been listening to that, it may think that it's doing the people it kills a favor, removing them from this life and sending them on to the next. Crossover's gotten religion, and maybe that can be used to defeat it. Back to the lab. Austin shuts off his utilities, starts a generator, and gets to work with the recording of John Blaine's phone call, breaking it down into syllables and phenomes. He calls Crossover back, but now he can make the voice of its creator say whatever he wants. He spooks Crossover pretty good, but to finish the job, he has to cut Crossover's physical connection to the city's utilities, which he does despite Crossover's best attempts to kill him. Michelle thinks she's had enough. Hanging out with Austin James is just a little too dangerous, way above her pay grade. But he wants her to stay, mainly because something she said just gave him an idea that seals the case of the frozen woman. The end, but also the beginning. Probe was created by Isaac Asimov and Michael Wagner, with the script to this pilot movie written by Wagner. Isaac Asimov, the author of the Foundation trilogy and iRobot, among others, surely needs no introduction. Oddly enough, the first book of his I ever owned was called Asimov on Astronomy, which I remember enjoying quite a bit, but I lost my copy of it somewhere along the way. Most of the time you see his name on credits of TV or a movie. It's signifying that the script is based on one of his works. But Probe represents one of a very few times Asimov participated directly in the process of creating something for TV. Incidentally, Isaac Asimov's first TV script was written in 1953 for the first American-made science fiction TV series, Captain Video and His Video Rangers. We lost Isaac Asimov 
1992. Michael Wagner wrote episodes of Man from Atlantis, Six Million Dollar Man, Kojak, Starsky and Hutch, The Rockford Files, and wrote or co-wrote nearly 30 episodes of Hill Street Blues, where he was also a story editor. After Probe, he went on to write for the John Ritter series Hooperman, but in 1989 he was tapped by Maurice Hurley, the outgoing showrunner on Star Trek The Next Generation, to replace him. Wagner took the job, but stayed for only four episodes before he decided the gig wasn't for him. Luckily, his friend and co-writer on one of his Star Trek episodes was Michael Piller, a former writer and producer who had worked on Simon and Simon, and Wagner stepped aside to let Piller assume the showrunner duties on Star Trek The Next Generation. The rest is history. There's a pretty strong argument that Michael Piller saved that show and kept it on the air longer than just its third season, and keep that name in mind because Piller also wrote for Probe. Michael Wagner went on to create, with Stephen Bochco, the politically-themed 1992 animated series Capital Critters, but Wagner died of brain cancer at the age of 44 of the year that show premiered, which was also 1992. Parker Stevenson is Austin James. Parker's first TV claim to fame was playing Frank Hardy in the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries for three seasons in the 1970s on ABC. Roles on The Love Boat, Falcon Crest, and the movie Stroker Ace followed, but Probe was Parker's first real attempt to establish a new career for himself and shed his 70s teen idol image, of which he was less than fond. He later became, at least briefly, a series regular on Baywatch. Most recently, he's been seen on Netflix's Greenhouse Academy. Stevenson has said that the character of Austin James was based on Michael Wagner's body language and mannerisms. Now, I have to compliment Parker Stevenson, by the way, on his creative use of the floppy drive on his computer as a prop. At this point in the 80s, PCs and PC clones had become commonplace, and it was the beginning of usurping a very diverse computer ecosystem that had been dominated at various points by Apple and Commodore. There's even a Mac on display in Blaine's computer center. But Austin has a PC clone in his lab with a five and a quarter inch floppy drive whose door was the kind that you just rotated up or down rather than the older hinged kind that opened in or out. When he sits down to do battle with crossover in the second hour, Parker Stevenson reaches over, opens the drive door, and then closes it again like it's a switch of some kind. I mean, you know, why not? Ashley Crow played Michelle Castle. She was Sandra Bennett in Heroes many years later, and she was also married to Matthew John Armstrong, who featured in Heroes as Ted Sprague. She was also a series regular on Champs, Turks, and The Secret Circle. Now, I swore up and down that John Blaine, Austin's very Stephen Hawking-esque wheelchair-bound colleague, was played by Armin Shimmerman, but no, he's played by Andy Wood. Now, the resemblance... Somewhere between the nose and the jawline and the ears is really quite striking. Just a couple of minutes into the show, watching the opening titles, I had a big problem with how they were arranged. We are shown a lengthy montage of photos of Parker Stevenson's character, from boyhood to winning science fairs, excelling in school, beating chess masters who are much older than he is, wearing a lab coat at an incredibly young age, and then we cut to, presumably, Ashley Crow's character. Let's see, ballerina outfit, and straight to holding a diploma from a secretarial school. As if that's the only trajectory of interests and careers that the show's writers and producers can imagine for Michelle Castle. Come on.
I mean, I know it's only 1988, but come on. We already had Cagney and Lacey and Dr. Beverly Crusher, for crying out loud. Come on. Other than that, though, Probe is astoundingly ahead of its time in places. While Crossover does have the traditional 80s movie mainframe going on, it's decentralized, it's distributed, almost like a creature of the Internet. But this was 1988, a time when the Internet was almost exclusively restricted to college campuses, and it was a far more opaque, non-user-friendly thing than it became in the 90s with the creation of the World Wide Web. This was the age of Gopher and very early Usenet and Telnet. These are some really advanced concepts that this show is putting under the nose of its audience. Also very forward-looking is the idea that Crossover can follow them through the city via closed-circuit TV cameras. Now keep in mind, this was 1988, but you could just about do this story today with very minimal changes. It actually makes more sense now than it did when it was first aired. That's a pretty good trick. Austin says that the videotape freeze frame is 1 20th of a second. Um, no, it isn't. Not unless Austin James is using some unique video format unknown to the rest of the world. Um, maybe one that he invented himself. Which, you know, eccentric genius who's a shut-in, he, he might very well have invented his own video format. But, if he is using NTSC videotape, NTSC being the video format from North America and a few other parts of the world, that freeze frame is 1 30th of a second, because the NTSC broadcast video format is 30 frames per second. Incidentally, this show, and every other show covered in this retrogram, were broadcast in the NTSC format. Also, this may officially be the most Picayune detail I have ever nitpicked in this podcast, but I used to work in television, so it bugged me. Sorry. Of course, this is the same guy who later fires up a gas generator in an enclosed space. This is why TV shows have to hire technical advisors. They may have figured, hey, Asimov's name is already on the credits. Surely, we are smart enough. One thing I wish they'd been smart enough to avoid were all of the boss and secretary cliches. Going back to what I said earlier about the opening credits and the wild disparity with how Austin and Michelle are shown there. Come on. It's obvious that the show is setting up Michelle to be the heart and Austin the brain. And you need both, but instead, pretty frequently, they fall back on stock argument scenes that just don't ring true. Even within two hours, the characters and the relationship have evolved, but... We gotta fill some time and shoehorn in some exposition, so comical argument! I mean, okay, I get it. Cheers had been on the air for six years at this point, and that was long enough to serve as a roadmap for how not to wear out the welcome of the Sam and Diane character dynamic, because even Cheers had gone in a different direction by then. And toward the end, it really does seem like Austin and Michelle are being set up as Sam and Diane. The music for Probe was by Sylvester LeVay, and is very much of its time with you know, layers and layers of synthesizers not a million miles away from the music LeVay had done for Airwolf. LeVay was also scoring Fox's Werewolf series, which we've covered in a previous retrogram, and was on at the same time, roughly the same time, that Probe was on the air. Interestingly, the end credits for the pilot movie of Probe tell us that it was filmed in North Carolina and Arizona. Kind of interesting there. So, what happened to Probe? Why didn't it survive with this big name on the opening credits, Isaac Asimov. I mean, how could you resist a sci-fi series created by Isaac Asimov? What happened to this show? Well, the answer is actually really simple. The two-hour pilot movie aired on a Tuesday, but ABC scheduled the weekly episodes to run opposite 
The Cosby Show, which was already in its fourth season on NBC and was a cornerstone of the must-see TV lineup. Now, by this point, Cosby was a ratings juggernaut, and quite a few shows, both good and bad, were sent to the slaughter in an effort to counter-program NBC. In that context, Probe didn't even last two months. Highwayman, Episode 3, The Hitchhiker, aired March 11, 1988, on NBC. The story so far. In a lawless but brightly lit, colorful, high-tech future, uh, think of it as Mad Max, headroom. Fighting crime has become a dangerous exercise. Enter the Highwayman. He's got a high-tech big rig loaded with the equipment he needs to fight crime, including smaller vehicles that roll out separately from the truck, and part of the trailer turns into a helicopter. With the help of his technician, D.C. Montana, and a fellow highwayman, an excitable Australian named Jetto, the highwayman handles delicate missions, and sometimes missions that require a lot of firepower and probably a lot of fighting. An NSA agent named Tanya Winthrop acts as something of a booking agent, calling the highwayman in to handle missions for other government agencies that don't have his unique abilities or his unique vehicle. The highways are a dangerous place, but that's where the highwayman is in his element. The Hitchhiker. Intrepid reporter Pepper McKenzie tries to enter quite a scene. Military vehicles, troops galore, helicopters with searchlights, guys in hazmat suits a crater about a football field wide, and actual generals walking into a mobile command center. There is a story here, but Pepper's not being allowed anywhere near it. And her car phone's not working either due to unusually high radiation interfering with it. Then, as if things can't get any weirder, the highwayman arrives in his rig, called in by Miss Winthrop to haul a particularly sensitive cargo for the army. Whatever came down here, there was something alive inside it. Though it's not alive anymore but it is emitting an incredible amount of radiation, so Highwayman's truck is the safest way to get it to the secure government medical facility several hours away. No sooner has he gotten underway than he has to stop immediately. There's a woman in the road, and apparently that's her vehicle that's been run off the road. She needs a lift. Highwayman grudgingly lets her climb into the passenger seat, though he's not aware that his passenger is reporter Pepper McKenzie, who has faked an accident to land in the middle of the story. He keeps quiet about what he's hauling, but it's hard to keep quiet when alarms start going off. They're motion sensors. Whatever Highwayman's cargo is, it's alive. He turns on the screen, letting him see inside his trailer with a camera. The body is sitting upright. It's about this time that Pepper suddenly feels a chill, and as she looks out the passenger window, her eyes glow green. Yikes. The next morning, Highwayman's rig pulls into the medical facility on schedule, and the army is waiting. They found Pepper's car at the side of the road and recognized it. She's placed under arrest and detained. Highwayman has questions about his cargo, questions that the general is in no mood to answer. Pepper seems back to normal. In fact, she's not even entirely sure what happened last night. The general calls the Highwayman into his office. He has sealed orders to be delivered to the National Space Agency's powerful radio telescope just up the road from here. It's Highwayman's job to see that they get there, no questions asked. Say, aren't the General's eyes a bit greener than normal? 
He shakes hands with the highwayman, who sets out to leave at once. In the hangar nearby, D.C. Montana has a full crew in hazmat suits, giving the highwayman's vehicle a very specialized car wash, one designed to decontaminate it after its cargo emitted a million rads. That's really rad. Jetto offers to take the highwayman in his rig instead, and they're off. But unusually, the highwayman isn't in a mood to joke around with his old friend, and that's enough to make Jetto a little bit worried. At the radio telescope center, Highwayman walks into the place, eyes aglow all green, and orders Dr. Leslie, who is apparently the lone scientist at the facility, to beam this message into deep space. When she doesn't agree to do this immediately, he grabs her head and is able to gain the knowledge of how to aim the dishes and send the message himself. But then the army shows up. Apparently, after the highwayman left, the general had a gap in his memory, and he learned that he had dispatched the highwayman to the radio telescope facility. But the highwayman takes Dr. Leslie hostage and fights his way back to Jetto's truck, going on the run. When the army calls in a helicopter gunship, Jetto brings his rig to a stop and surrenders, suspecting that something is seriously wrong. The highwayman and Dr. Leslie exit Jetto's truck, but the highwayman almost immediately hits the ground, his head in pain. Dr. Leslie's eyes glow green as the highwayman is arrested. He's thrown into the brig with Pepper McKenzie, and together they piece together what's been happening. Some kind of alien entity is jumping from body to body. But why? What does it want? The green eyes keep going from one person to the next. From Dr. Leslie, to a doctor at the medical facility doing an autopsy on the charred alien body, to another doctor who hands the body off to an army major. And now that major is on the run, all green eyes, alien corpse and all, back to the crash site. Jetto breaks the highwayman and Pepper McKenzie out of their jail cell, and a tense showdown follows at the crash site with the possessed army major. Finally, the highwayman and Jetto are able to get the upper hand and let the army destroy the crashed flying saucer, which was emitting a distress signal that other aliens surely would have followed. And if the alien possessing the army major for a moment was any indication, their plans were to enslave the people of the Earth. But fortunately, that's not going to happen now. The End The Highwayman starred Sam Jones as the Highwayman, the artist formerly known as Flash Gordon. Even though Flash Gordon was eight years in the past for Sam, Flash was still the role he was best known for. And this show's brief time on the air wasn't going to change that. Sam would continue to guest star in TV, showing up in Cobra, Thunder in Paradise, Renegade, Baywatch, Walker, Texas Ranger, Silk Stockings, and Stargate SG-1, before going into a career in private security. But showbiz and the undying love folks like myself profess for Flash Gordon, I'll admit that up front, that has all brought Sam back into the limelight, appearing in Seth MacFarlane's Ted movies as Flash Gordon, and embracing the convention circuit wholeheartedly. There's an entire movie about this phenomenon called Life After Flash, which I watched not too long ago. It's kind of fun. I, I recommend it. Mark Jacko Jackson as Jetto. Jacko was an Australian footballer who managed to capitalize on his sports fame in a brief attempt to become a multimedia celebrity. Now, admittedly, he is still a celebrity down under, but he couldn't get that to translate outside of Australia. Jetto's only function, at least in this episode, seems to be to stand around and be very Australian and shout, OI, a lot. But really, it's like someone took a bunch of punk stereotypes that were already 10 years old and crammed all of them into one very Australian package. 
Jacko was also the last human mascot for Energizer batteries before their ad campaign started using the bunny. Jane Badler is Miss Tanya Winthrop. Now, you remember her as Diana from the original V, though when this weekly series based on V ended, it didn't take long for Jane to relocate to Falcon Crest as a regular for one season, and then to this show. It was her next job, however, that would change the rest of her life. She signed on as a regular for the new 1980s version of Mission Impossible, which was very much a child of the writer's strike, and it filmed in Australia, where she met her future husband. Uh, her future husband was not Jacko, by the way. <laughs> I would get that out of the way before you thought I was going somewhere with that. Tim Russ stars as DC Montana. DC fixes the truck in between adventures and provides tech support during adventures. And fittingly for Tim Russ, who would later become a regular on Star Trek Voyager as Tuvok, DC is named after veteran Star Trek story editor DC Fontana. This role was something of a consolation prize for Tim, who had been a strong contender for a regular role on Star Trek The Next Generation, which was maybe all of half a year old at this point, so we're talking only a few months ago. He was like the first runner-up for the role of Geordi LaForge. The Highwayman was created by Glenn A. Larson and Douglas Hayes. This was Douglas Hayes' last on-screen credit. He died in 1993. Now, you could easily claim that most of Glenn Larson's shows are removed from reality, but this show is really something else. <laughs> I file The Highwayman under a genre I would call day-glow dystopia, or see also my earlier statement about Mad Max headroom. Futuristic dystopia requires grit and probably lower lighting, both of which are hard to achieve on a TV budget, especially if your series has thrown virtually all of its money at a futuristic practical 18-wheeler truck prop. I noticed also The Highwayman was filmed entirely on location in Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Look at you, Arizona! All over the primetime schedule in March 1988. Good for you. These shows were part of what was on the TV landscape at the beginning of the strike, but once the episodes that were already in the can ran out, that landscape looked very different. Now, it's been said that the effects of the strike were minimized because networks don't roll out a lot of new programming over the summer months when their potential audience is expected to be outside having fun in the sun rather than indoors watching TV. And that may have been correct in 1988. But here in 2020, we are headed for, as I called it earlier, the long, dark rerun season of The Soul. Shows have exhausted their episodes that were shot before COVID-19 shut down all production everywhere. All of the DC comic shows on The CW, for example, they've already come right out and said there will not be new episodes of those until 2021 at the earliest. TV networks are looking at a year without much in the way of new programming, and this time, the tried, true, and budget-conscious fallbacks of live sports coverage, variety shows, and reality TV, those aren't quite going to be able to make a comeback this time because they involve getting people into the same spaces with each other. Will old favorites make a comeback? Maybe someone will even rerun ALF and the Highwayman, maybe with pop-up video-style viewing notes. Who knows? Maybe you should get used to reading books or reading comics, I don't know. 
listen to some podcasts, maybe. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this retrogram was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If it meant keeping the Logbook site and its various podcasts and videocasts around, I have a feeling they'd happily go on a dangerous mission with an excitable Australian. Oi! If you would like show transcripts, extra patron-exclusive episodes from time to time, and early show access, blast off to patreon.com slash the logbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done. If you don't want to do the ongoing Patreon thing, we get that. You can also buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com or by ordering all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram has been a production of thelogbook.com.